0: This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. How professional the Mexican, but are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends friends in Argentina. Right. And
1: that's what happened. We'll Role
0: at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Will Latin America ever catch up to the rest of the global economy? And if so, will it involve China? My name is Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and here to answer that question and more is Stephen Kaplan, associate professor of international affairs and political science at George Washington University here in Washington, DC. Welcome to the show, Stephen.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show, Richard. So
0: first of all, congratulations on being probably one of only 10 people left in DC in late July, so <laughs> you probably had to dodge the tumbleweeds on your way to the studio because basically it's, it's you, and me, yeah, in D.C.
1: Yeah, I call for an Uber and 25 <laughs> cars show up. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just begging for something yeah. to do, right.
0: So Stephen, you're an expert on global macroeconomic trends, and in particular how those trends have affected Latin America in particular over the last couple of decades. So why don't we start out, if you could give us sort of a summary of, of what's happened, again, sort of on the global level, those trends that we're seeing in, in development and finance and so on, and then maybe, if you would dare to give sort of a preview of the next five to 10 years, just go slowly so I can write down all your stock tips <laughs> right. uh, and go out and <laughs> cash in on But Let's start with what are sort of the macro trends, I guess, on the global stage. And then we'll go from there later and talk about how that affects the region.
1: Yeah, so I think some of the key macro trends over time within Latin America that will also sort of give a sense for where China has been able to find an opportunity are as follows. If you think of the turn of this past century, kind of coming from a you know world of a Washington consensus and you know ending sort of a world of a commodity boom, one of the key features of the 1990s into 2000s was the ability to bring down inflation, provide macroeconomic stability, budgetary balance, and so to some extent, Western governance and Western institutions were very successful on this front. Probably a front where, admittedly, there could have been more progress was with income inequality throughout the region. And so, as we see these democracies start to consolidate over time, we also see a greater push, notwithstanding the success of growth models that achieve stability, we see a greater push for. Alleviating some of the public infrastructure deficits, some of the concerns about social programs and housing and healthcare, these all start to come to the forefront more over time. And a key feature, too, is when countries were balancing their budgets over the course of the 1990s, generally it's very hard to cut social spending, education, healthcare. Where did they cut? Infrastructure. So you end up with a region with a large infrastructure deficit. And m- growing middle class that is really demanding better infrastructure, better resources, uh, governments that are more responsive. And so, this is the backdrop in which China enters.
0: Just to clarify, Stephen, when we talk about infrastructure, are we talking about things like roads, bridges, dams? Are we talking things about even school systems or water systems, or is that all of the above? What, what do we mean when we say infrastructure? it's
1: all of the above. Okay. I think probably when you think of Argentina and Brazil and the kinds of infrastructure packages that the governments are sponsoring currently, oftentimes are ports, there are railways, both cargo and passenger, airports, basically trying to create the infrastructure to facilitate things such as goods arriving to port more quickly. You you can see even an example from Argentina and traveling through Argentina, oftentimes if you're on the roads, the highways, there's one lane roads and big trucks (laughs) moving from place to place. And one of the big needs from an infrastructure standpoint has been cargo railway. Because right? I think it's somewhere in the order of 90%, 95% of cargo goes through your highways. So that's the idea of can you build railway, freight railway, that could instead deliver this cargo to ports, et cetera. So it's really updating that entire infrastructure network. But certainly to your point, it, it is also, there's a need for infrastructure and hospitals and, and schools and all that as well.
0: So if I understand your point correctly, Stephen, so on one hand, it looks like a good news picture in that the economic management or political governance in a way sort of getting smarter in terms of lower deficits and, you know, sounder macroeconomic policies. But the hidden cost is that they've just deferred building all the things that they should build so that you can't really they can't really get to the next level in terms of commerce and trade and development, right? Is that right in yeah, a nutshell? And, to
1: some extent, and then this creates a catch twenty-two for governments in Argentina and Brazil, right? Because you open the paper and you hear there's still ongoing austerity pushes in those countries that they struggled financially recently. But at the same time, you have these big infrastructure packages, right? So how do you accomplish it? So one of the things we start to hear a lot of is, well, can you have public-private sector partnerships to defray the cost, right? There's a lot of experimenting in terms of how to deliver public services and infrastructure without the high price tag.
0: Okay. So at this point, this is sort of where China enters the picture, mm-hmm, right? Because exactly. they've got this deficit of, of large public infrastructure projects. Along comes China. And a- again, the the year that we're talking about that this starts is sort of early 2000s. Is that about when China starts making its push into the region?
1: Yeah. So, And we could separate that push economically between trade and then later investment in finance. So if you think China joins the WTO right around the time you are talking about early 2000s, as that happens, you get a big trade integration that starts to occur between Latin America and China, China demanding more and more commodities such as soybeans from Latin America, and Latin America importing capital goods from China. And that's the first stage of the relationship. Beginning with the global financial crisis in 2008, as Western finance starts to leave during the downturn, that creates an opportunity once again for Chinese finance and investment to come into the region.
0: You know, I, I served in Argentina in the early 2000s, and everyone was talking about China. Chinese money's coming in, and China's building this, building that. But then, not just in Argentina, but in other countries, it's sort of like there is not a whole lot of, or many cases, not follow-up, or, or a lot of these mm-hmm. projects didn't actually materialize. How much of what we have seen over the last 20 years was sort of China making a big splash with a big announcement, we're going to do this or that. How much of that has actually come to completion? Do we have a ratio in terms of what's been promised versus what's been uh, fulfilled? Right,
1: so to provide some details there, some of what we've seen, particularly as China entered into Latin America with a lag relative to Africa and elsewhere, some of the question is why, right? Because as you're talking about early two thousands, there was lots of big promises from China, right? Oh, it wouldn't just be trade, it'd be investment too. Well, one of the things that China had to adjust as a creditor to within Latin America that was somewhat different in many places in Africa, is that you had, sure, democracies that were consolidating, but you also had relatively strong institutions. So countries with a strong history of labor unions and labor laws, uh, such as Argentina and Brazil, they weren't going to let China come invest and bring its workers as well. Right. So there was some investment even promised in places like Brazil, but the impediment initially was, well, you can't necessarily bring Chinese manual labor according to our laws, you can bring engineers, et cetera. But, you know, in terms of local content, there was a real pushback uh, from a Brazilian perspective. So that's one of the reasons, I think, that it was slower coming uh, in Latin America relative to elsewhere. Certainly your point two about the difference between the headline number (laughs) versus the actual investment. So now let's begin in 2008 once the financing investment starts coming in from China, and effectively, yes, I think initially you have big headline promises. Let's take freight railway, as I was talking about earlier in Argentina, just like one example. The initial number is about $10 million. <laughs> and of course, that's a massive amount of money. But then you find what ends up happening is China also releases these deals tranche by tranche. So there was a first tranche for cargo freight that was about $2.5 billion that they then negotiate all the different features of, but the rest doesn't even happen until the first stage comes to completion, right? So some of it is promises versus delivery. Some of it is also those promises are framed in very big ticket numbers that may even take place over the course of five or 10 years, right? So there's a lot longer time horizon often than perhaps we're used to when talking about Western finance, particularly some finance that tends to have you know, bonds, equities, these kinds of things, shorter term frames.
0: How much do we know about Chinese decision-making process with respect to Latin America? I mean, is there a strategic plan or is the Chinese leadership or Chinese companies or Chinese state entities just reacting to events? You know and the, I guess the corollary of that question is how centralized is this? Or are these various actors sort of with their own agendas in in various parts of the Chinese economy? That are making their own decisions, or is there, you know, a guy at a desk in, in Beijing that's saying, okay, first Argentina, then Brazil, then whatever?
1: Yeah, so I think it's far less monolithic than is often characterized in the popular press. You know, sure, I think you have the structure of incentives that's created by government programs, but then oftentimes within that structure of incentives, you have you know different entities moving out at a different pace, right? Even you know, China tends to put a lot of emphasis on local governments bringing them projects. So there's even sort of the pacing of, okay, how do local governments bring them projects over time as well? So I think that that's definitely one key feature to think about. In terms of how do they structure the strategy for Latin America? I think the initial kind of policies to think of, if we go back to when this was happening in, you know, coming out of the financial crisis in 2008, the initial cues were really the go global strategy, which is an internationalization of Chinese firms, right? China looks around the world, the success stories in Japan, elsewhere in East Asia, and you have these global multinational firms. China wants that too. So in a lot of ways, taking a note from their domestic playbook where they use big infrastructure spending, state-led investment in order to kind of create you know, economic growth and development, essentially on some level, they're doing that internationally. They're using these big infrastructure projects to create demand for heavy machinery, construction materials, you know, things that they have an overcapacity for domestically, but then once they have the first move of these policy banks investing overseas, then the idea is to create a lot of other commercial activity, right? FDI, trade, brownfield, greenfield, all different kinds of investments over time so that they have a space in the western hemisphere to learn about marketing, distribution, you know, great gain, greater market share, things along these lines.
0: So in a sense, the project is the strategy, right? It's like similar to when we make a major weapon sale and we know that that creates a years, decade-long relationship of services and parts and everything.
1: Yeah, that's actually, in in some ways, a perfect analogy from the standpoint of, if you think of how our security community tends to think about strategy, it's over a 10, 15-year horizon. I think oftentimes Western finance or investment, particularly into developing countries, sometimes has a shorter time horizon, particularly if you bracket multilateral institutions and development banks, right? And so I think comparatively China tends to have that very long term strategy where they're quite willing to, you know, subsidize companies in the energy sector in order to get greater market share, right, to get a foothold in that energy sector, and create greater competition over the long run. right? So I think that longer term strategy is a key feature of Chinese finance.
0: So let's talk about three specific countries in, in South America that I think all kind of models, mm-hmm. positive and negative, right. <laughs> for where the region could go. And I'd like your, curious your thoughts on sort of what lessons do you think other countries are learning? Let's start with Venezuela. Venezuela used to be, as many people have observed, one of the richest countries, if not the richest country, because of its oil wealth. And uh, for a, a while, people thought, or at least Venezuela thought, it was a model for the region. Not so today. What do you think the region is learning from the Venezuelan example as it unfolds into whatever it becomes, you know, dumpster fire the, the I tenister. think
1: to some extent in Venezuela there's an age old lesson that China as a creditor is now learning, which is the moral hazard issue, right? Where on some level you have a leader coming in initially Chavez late 1990s early 2000s, he wants to diversify economic reliance away from the United States. He wants to find partners that will do this. China's willing to do that from the standpoint of You know, not necessarily completely from an ideological standpoint, even from a commercial standpoint, as we talked about before, they see very good energy plays over time, very good ways to kind of gain market share and access. So they decide, compared to Western finance that embeds its lending in policy conditionality, things like budget discipline, privatization. If you think of what's the bottom line of policy conditionality, it's so that creditors can ensure they get repaid. So you have a balanced budget then governments can repay those creditors. Comparatively, China says, well, we believe in a policy of (laughs) non-intervention. We're not gonna have those same policy conditionalities. So that's gonna give governments a lot greater degree of discretion, right? And so the big difference with China is it puts a lot greater emphasis on local governance, right? Uh, Compared to the Western model that kind of says, okay, we're gonna share some of these questions, particularly with these incentives that we're gonna lay out with policy conditionality. Instead. China lays out a lot of commercial conditions, which is a big contrast from traditional Western governance, and I think in some ways brings us back through time and space to a period in time, say the late 70s and early 80s, right before the debt crisis, where governments in Latin America had greater degrees of discretion, right? And in some ways, that's what China gives these these governments.
0: Do you think what's happening in Venezuela and and certainly kind of the disaster that's unfolded there, is this paradoxically going to make countries in the region more willing to listen to sort of the traditional kind of – as you refer to the Washington consensus, right? Like here's what you need to run a country and run it well. It it swung back to the left for a while. Like no, no, we don't want that. But Venezuela seems to have proved the the model that if if you don't adhere to some basic – you know, macroeconomic principles, governance principles, political principles, your country's going to go down the tubes. Is, is that one of the takeaways we may see from
1: this? I think to some extent, and in some ways, even before the Venezuelan crisis, we saw that kind of variation even among the left in Latin America. Take a country like Bolivia, which was, from a rhetorical standpoint, right, pushed back very strongly against the Washington Consensus and neoliberalism, and we had lots of nationalizations, et cetera. But at the same time, it was also a country that effectively had macroeconomic discipline for a long time. So I think again, it's sort of probably chiseling once again sort of the importance of macroeconomic discipline into, maybe the policymakers within the region, but you know, there's still variation. I think we're seeing, for example, in Mexico, things start to you know unwind in the other direction where there's less emphasis on institutions and technocrats. So yes, there's a lesson there, but it's not clear that necessarily everybody will heed that lesson, right?
0: <laughs> Let's talk about Argentina. Of course, it mm-hmm. always provides the example for whatever you're trying to prove, <laughs> Argentina usually can, can provide, right? I mean, Argentina has this unfortunate history of riding this roller coaster, right, of sort of macroeconomic and political stability for about a decade, and then chaos, and then followed by another round of, okay, things are getting better. And under Macri, when he was first elected, I think there was a lot of hope in the country that Argentina had once again turned another corner and was sort of back on the road towards where the Kirchner's gone, they're going to repay their debts, and et cetera, et cetera. hasn't quite worked out that way. What is the problem with Argentina? Why can it not get its sort of house in order to at least get back to the status quo?
1: Yeah, I think to some extent, you know, some of the problems there are outside of Argentina's control, right? Think of a government, the macro government came in and it wanted a policy of gradualism, right? Rather than necessarily come in and have extremely strong austerity <laughs> and perhaps lose support of labor unions and, and, and key political players, they tried to take a gradual approach. You have budget discipline, you have targets, but at the same time, you know you would still have social spending, you'd be slow to unwind some of the subsidies that were key features of the Kirsten administration. So you could both stabilize and maintain political support. The unfortunate thing, because I think that strategy in a lot of ways from a domestic political economic standpoint makes sense, the unfortunate thing is this is taking place against a backdrop of rising interest rates globally. And even if you know, we say, okay, the technical default in 2014, to some extent, yeah, you had a government that wasn't terribly market-friendly, locked out of markets, et cetera. But you also had sort of an unfortunate circumstance where vulture funds were able to kind of, you know, have a lot of control over government, right, and what they would decide to do, and and, and use that financial leverage over government. But effectively, I think. You know, what ends up happening over time is as Macri comes in and he's able to settle some of those debts with holdout out creditors, et cetera, that reputational effect of 2014's technical default, 2001, 2002, even if Argentina isn't solely to blame, that's going to affect the way that financial investors. Come back into Argentina. And so they eventually came back in, particularly following the rene- renegotiation with holdout creditors, but particularly from a foreign direct investment standpoint it was a little slower to follow some of that hotter money in terms of equity in in bond markets.
0: Let's sort of go go back up to a, I guess, more panoramic level. We sort of seem to be in this populist national moment politically uh, around the world, right? You've seen a number of elections in which you can argue that the populist candidate or the nationalist candidate has won in the United States, in the UK, I mean, Italy to a certain extent, and Brazil. How do you think that's going to affect the actual I guess, political governance and economic development slash trade decisions. And and I'll just give one example sort of where it's it's hard to chart a a straight line course. Mexico, uh, the country I know the best, although Lopez Obrador has pulled the country somewhat to the left, Mm -hmm. it's not to the degree that I think a lot of people feared Mm -hmm. yet, Mm -hmm. at least, given that. And it's been more or less a rational approach so far, certainly not a hard left turn against a lot of expectations because López Obrador is always seen as sort of the the leftist demagogue who is going to take Mexico back to the 70s. I still argue he wants to do that. He just can't. Are we going to see something similar happen in the rest of the region? You know, even if, let's say, you had another several populist slash nationalist leaders come to office or is that particular ideology empty in in terms of a strategy for development and trade, etc.?
1: Yeah, I think that we really have variation within the region. You have places like Chile that clearly kind of have marched in a direction where they've said technocrats, institutions, macroeconomic prudence, this is sort of a good governance strategy. And even there, right, you've had a pushback from younger student population, right, from a communist party, from various parts of society to say, Well, we don't know if this macroeconomic balance is the correct balance, right? And is there ways to kind of spend more and make sure that we kind of also start to chisel away at income inequality in these things? So I think Chile is a country where it is going to continue on that path of kind of prudence. But I think that tension is real for the entire region, right? Where on one level, you've had a long history of trying to achieve macro stability and draw on investment and create growth that way. But that's a slow moving kind of picture oftentimes. And I think that at the same time, impatience can bubble up, right? And I think when impatience bubbles up, it makes countries more susceptible to these kind of pressures. I think very similarly, uh, right now, Mexico hasn't been able, I agree with you about Lopez Obrador, but we haven't seen the dynamic growth, right? The question for Lopez Obrador will be at what point if we don't see that growth, is he more tempted? to start to chisel away at some of the macroeconomic prudence and and technocratic know-how that Mexico has built over time, right? And so I think within every country these tensions are the ones that are emerging between technocratic economic prudence versus trying to stimulate a more rapid growth and development pathway.
0: We haven't talked at all about trade, but let's wrap up talking about trade in that it seems to be we're also in a moment in which trade or the consensus around the value of international trade is dead, Mm -hmm. right? And primarily because the United States has decided we're, we're not in it to win it, I suppose, by withdrawing from NAFTA, uh, pulling out a TPP, which is the Democrats would have done as well. But you can't argue that there's really a, a push to get more international trade going. And this seems to be paralleled in other countries. Do you think the economic and trade relationships are going to reassert themselves, the realities of expanding China, the realities of a much stronger North America as a trading platform? Is that going to return as sort of a, a, a dynamic that was very much alive in Latin America for a time and now because the United States is not providing leadership it seems to be have disappeared.
1: Yeah, I mean to some extent perhaps it's disappeared but perhaps it hasn't, right? There's a void once again that China has been able to move into. And so even though the United States is, you know, honing to more of a bilateral path within the region, we see China trying to move towards a more multilateral path, right? So, you know, ultimately, we can say, hey, well, China, just like any country, is ultimately interested in promoting their own interests commercially, et cetera. But at the same time, they're paying a fair amount of lip service and rhetoric towards these multilateral frameworks, right? They're an active member of the IDB. They're teaming on projects with the World Bank. From a trade standpoint, they become a major trade partner with many countries within Latin America. You saw a Macri government that wanted to toggle <laughs> from the protectionism of the past towards a more open aperture, and China was there to greet them as well. And so, I think in a lot of ways, the narrative is: yes, to some extent, the U.S. is withdrawing from the region or putting more of an emphasis on bilateralism, but China recognizes this, and just as they moved in with finance investment in 2008 since sort of the transition with Trump in 2016, they're now moving into sort of the open space from a multilateral standpoint, right? So I think there's a real geopolitical capital argument to be made on the economic front here as well.
0: Interesting. So it sounds ironically that sort of by withdrawing, we've created space for China and by China taking advantage of that space, it'll probably prompt the United States to get reengaged.
1: Yeah. To a similar extent, you mentioned TPP. Mm -hmm. It's a similar kind of narrative with a lot of U.S. allies deciding to let's keep the momentum moving forward with TPP and that was one of the ways to try and constrain China economically and institutionally within Asia. That's still there and to some extent China's moved in the void in Asia but I think there's a hope among U.S. allies that eventually the United States will sort of re-engage, and maybe there's some instruments there that they can take advantage of.
0: Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think in just a little over 25 minutes, seeing the only guys in Washington, we managed to solve pretty much,
1: <laughs> I don't know, the, the world's problems. Uh, another 25 minutes
0: and, and we're done. But anyway, look forward to having you back on the show and wish you the best of luck.
1: Yeah, this is a terrific discussion. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at csis.org.